Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, did Putin kill Alexei Navalny to thwart a prisoner swap? Navalny's aides making that bold accusation tonight. A Russian investigative journalist and longtime Navalny friend is out front with more. Plus an exclusive K-file investigation revealing an alleged architect of Trump's fake elector scheme ran a secret Twitter account directly contradicting what he was telling investigators. And a race against time for Donald Trump. Can he get the half a billion dollars he now owes the state of New York in 30 days or less? Let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, speaking out on the verge of a prisoner swap. Alexei Navalny's closest ally tonight is claiming that a deal to swap Navalny and two Americans for one of Putin's most wanted assassins was ready to go when Navalny suddenly died in a Russian penal colony. Navalny was everything Putin could never be, and Putin hated him for it. But why did he kill him now? Why February 16th? I know the answer to that question, and I have neither the slightest reason nor desire to hide it. Well, Navalny's team says that this was all at the final stage, the final stage of a deal to swap Navalny on the night of February 15th. The night of February 15th, of course, is the night before Navalny mysteriously died in prison. Navalny's team says that Russian oligarch and billionaire Roman Abramovich delivered Putin's proposal to swap Navalny. And the news is coming as Navalny's wife is now speaking out against Putin. Murder was not enough for Putin. Now he holds his body hostage, mocks his mother, forces her to agree to a secret funeral. And now she is facing threats from one of the biggest names on Russian state television, one of Putin's propaganda mouthpieces. She's already said and done enough to go to prison. Our laws will be the same for everyone. The same fate awaits Navalny. If she comes to Russia, she will go to prison. If she comes to Russia, she will go to prison. Well, the threats coming from Russia are not stopping there because Putin himself is now making it clear saying he shouldn't be crossed by anyone because that Russia has been building up, perfecting, and getting its most lethal forces ready. Today, the share of modern weapons and equipment in the strategic nuclear forces has already reached 95%, while the naval component of the nuclear triad is almost at 100%. 95 to 100% on the nuclear arms front. Matthew Chance is out front in Moscow tonight with all the details, these new details that we are learning about a proposed massive prisoner exchange. Mourners still paying their respects at makeshift memorials across Russia. But now, another unexpected twist in Alexei Navalny's tragic saga. According to his close aide, negotiations for the release of the Russian opposition leader we're reaching a conclusion. He was poised to be swapped, says his team. 
Navalny should have been free in the coming days because we achieved a decision on his exchange. I received confirmation that negotiations were underway and were at the final stage on the evening of February 15th. On February 16th, Alexei was killed. The Kremlin tells CNN it has no knowledge of any deal and had nothing to do with his death. But Navalny's team insists the Russian opposition figure was killed to prevent him from being swapped. You can see Evan Gershkovich is in there. Hi, Matthew from CNN. Swapped along with US citizens in Russian jails, like Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, accused of espionage. Former US Marine Paul Whelan, serving 16 years for spying. I am innocent of any charge. The US says both are unlawfully detained and has been negotiating for their release, including early talks on Navalny, one Western official tells CNN. But the Kremlin has regularly hinted it wants back this man, a former FSB agent, Vadim Krasikov, serving a life sentence in Germany for killing a Chechen dissident. Navalny's team accuses the Kremlin of simply taking the opposition leader off the negotiating table by killing him. Allegations the Kremlin denies. It was clearly communicated to Putin that the only way to get Krasikov is to exchange him for Navalny. Hold on, thought Putin, I can't tolerate Navalny being free. And since they're willing to exchange Krasikov in principle, then I just need to get rid of the bargaining chip. No person, in other words, no problem. The kind of ruthlessness that saw Alexei Navalny poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok in 2020. Recovering only to be arrested and imprisoned on his return to Russia the following year. After news of his unexplained death, hundreds of mourners were detained while laying flowers. Now, Navalny's team says a public farewell, a potential flashpoint, will be held at the end of this week. In death, as in life, it seems, Alexei Navalny continues to challenge the Kremlin's power. Matthew, you know, just watching that, I mean, it is amazing to see the, what this deal was and why perhaps he may have been killed when he was killed, talking about Navalny. And, you know, initially there were protests, uh, people protested, and then there were arrests of Navalny supporters in the wake of his death. You're in Moscow now. What are regular people there now saying about Navalny? Well, Aaron, uh, look, I mean, Navalny has always divided opinion inside Russia, but we've seen from the thousands of people that have come out and pay their last respects at great risk to, the, to their own liberty that he, he has a lot of supporters. I mean, hundreds of people across the country have been detained simply for laying flowers at the makeshift memorials that have sprung up in towns and cities across the country. Look, the big test is going to come at the end of this week when the Valley's team say uh, they're going to hold a public memorial service, a public funeral uh, for Alexei Navalny right here in the Russian capital, Moscow. Um, and look, I mean, the, the, you know, if you look at all that risk about coming out to, to pay your respects or to protest, it's going to be really interesting to see how many people come out and attend that funeral, given that there is that risk attached to it.
Yeah, it is going to be incredible to watch. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you so much. Matthew is in Moscow tonight. And one of Navalny's closest friends is the Russian investigative journalist Evgenia Alberts. And Evgenia is with me now. And I, I so much appreciate your time. And I know that uh, in the wake of this uh, horrible loss and, and death, you have been doing a lot of your own reporting, Evgenia. Why didn't this deal for Navalny happen? Aaron, uh, thank you very much for inviting me for this program and for talking about Alexei Navalny. So there are, you know, several hypotheses, and we yet to get confirmation for any one of it. There is one hypothesis that it is German side that didn't want to release Vadim Krasik. So first of all, you know, I can say that it's true that uh, Vladimir Putin, and it speaks tons about the kind of a man Putin is and the kind of president regime that exists in Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, uh, was ready to exchange his prisoners uh, uh, for uh, the Russia hitman, Vadim Krasikov, the guy who murdered uh, one of the Chechen commanders in Germany on the territory of Germany. Right. He was uh, uh, arrested, he was uh, uh, trialed, he went through trial and he was sentenced to many years in jail. So it's true that, uh, as far as we know, Kremlin refused to talk about anybody else but Vadim Krasikov. One of the hypotheses was that German authorities were pretty much against that. Then, you know, the, we got the information that uh, Germans were ready to go for that. However, the White House was against uh, the swamp because... Obviously, Krasikov is a guy with uh, blood on his hands because he didn't serve even half of his sentence in jail. Yeah. And probably most importantly, because it, it, it's, it, it could be a wrong message to Putin that he can uh, grab hostages like Evan Gashkovich or Paul, uh, Paul Willen, yep. keep them in Russian jails and keep killing people outside Russia. So, so then, uh, you know, I know the reporting, uh, Maria Pevchik, obviously a, a close ally running the investigations uh, unit for Navalny's foundation, uh, you know, has said that then the U.S. wanted, uh, the, the U.S., those two prisoners were included, Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich. But um, Evgenia, why do you think Navalny died when he did? And I know you heard, again, Maria Pevchik saying, well, he, he died uh, the, the day that this was supposed to be announced, the day that it was supposed to be happened. We don't, we don't know the, the details on this and what, what actually was about to happen or not. But why do you think Navalny died that day? I think uh, Navalny died that day because he presented a clear-cut alternative to Putin. Putin wanted to break him to crash him, and he totally failed. Putin realized that uh, Navalny was going to challenge him as long as he's alive. So he, Putin decided that uh, it's better to kill Navalny and just to get rid of this problem by the name Navalny. As, you know, Joseph Stalin used to say, and, you know, Putin basically is getting into Stalin's shoes right now, that, you know, if there is no person, there is, not a, there is no problem. That's it. If there's no person, there is no problem. Um, I know you've exchanged letters with Navalny throughout his time in prison. Uh, and of course, I know your friends uh, with his wife as well. But you received hundreds of letters from him during his time. And he was fascinated by American politics. What did he tell you? He was very interested in American politics. In fact, you know, when he went to 
studied at Yale University at the law, Yale Long Program, he was interested in the American political machine first and foremost. And he was interested because he was trying to figure out what are means and ways to win, to be winning elections. That's why time and again, he was watching all kind of uh, American uh, TV series like House of Cards or like, you know, uh, The Wire, where, you know, there's elections mm -hmm. in Baltimore or homeless. And he was picking up tools there. He also was reading a lot of memoirs. He was reading memoirs of, uh, you know, he was fascinated by RFK, by uh, Robert uh, Fitzgerald Kennedy, mm -hmm. and he communicated uh, with Kerry Kennedy, uh, Kennedy's daughter. He also read, you know, uh, memoirs by Axelrod, who was uh, instrumental in Obama's victory. But at the same time, he read memoirs of Republicans because he wanted to understand the nature of yeah. American conservatives, and he read uh, he read a book by George uh, uh, George W. Bush younger, and even by Karl Rove and some others. He also was reading books. He read books by Nelson Mandela and Churchill, etc. He was he was the guy who was uh, he decided to use his years in jail as some sort of a, another university for he himself. Yeah. He was reading two books uh, uh, a week. Oh. That's fascinating. Evgenia, thank you so much. I appreciate your sharing all of that with me. And I want to go to Seth Jones now, the Senior Vice President for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And, and Seth, I want to get your reaction to these new threats that we're just hearing from Putin, right? He's talking about 95% readiness on some of the nuclear stockpile, 100% on others. Uh, what can you tell us right now from all of your work about the state of Putin's weapons manufacturing and his stockpiles right now? Well, Aaron, I think there is no question right now that uh, Vladimir Putin feels emboldened right now on the battlefield in Ukraine. His forces uh, took Avdivka over the past week. Not a huge area, but certainly they are on the offensive right now. Uh, we're seeing them pushing in areas like Bakhmut and, um, and, and other areas along the front lines. Uh, they're assassinating individuals. We saw that in Spain recently, a Russian pilot that uh, defected. What's interesting is is on the munitions, this is an area where uh, the Russians have lost upwards of th uh, 3,600 tanks since the war began, 5,000 other armored vehicles. Yep. They've struggled a little bit along these lines, but of concern is they're getting help from the Chinese, the North Koreans, and the Iranians on their industrial base. So they're getting some help from allies. And, and, and obviously that's hugely significant at a time when Ukraine, uh, you know, we understand in some points is firing smoke because of their literally firing smoke. Our friend Plaikens reported because they don't have ammo. Uh, I know you, you mentioned the word emboldened. And I know you believe Putin is feeling significantly emboldened right now. But actually, you've been saying for multiple reasons. Yes, for multiple reasons. Uh, there's battlefield activity. I mean, you know, it's it's a little bit of an, an odd decision on his part. Uh, Sweden Sweden has just uh, been now led into NATO, so his strategic picture isn't great. Um, the uh, the number of casualties we're hearing from Avdivka, Russian casualties, is upwards of fifteen to seventeen thousand. So it's emboldened, but but there is a propaganda element uh, to this. I think the reality is that his forces have suffered, and his strategic position uh, is is more problematic than it was several months ago. Seth Jones, thank you very much. Thank you. And next, our K file has an exclusive investigation, and what it reveals is a secret Twitter account belonging to Kenneth Cheesebro, an alleged architect of the Trump fake electors plot. But here's the thing. Here's what Chesbro told investigators. 
Do you have any social media presence? Uh, Facebook, Instagram, no, Twitter? I, I mean, uh, no. And don't vote for Biden. Democrats in Michigan, furious at the president over his handling of the war in Gaza, are telling other Democrats to do just that and take a stand. Is Biden in for a rude awakening in what will be a must-win state in the general? Plus, Donald Trump's race against time to find half a billion dollar bond. Can he do it? The president of a New York bond company is out front with the answer. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, a secret Twitter account. Exclusive reporting from CNN's K-File team revealing that Kenneth Chesbro, an alleged architect of Team Trump's fake elector plot in 2020, concealed a Twitter account. And it wasn't just concealing it. It was what was in it. It was filled with damning posts that directly undercut his testimony to prosecutors. Here's just one example. Do you have any social media presence? Uh, Facebook, Instagram, no, Twitter? I, I mean, uh, no, uh, I, I, for whatever, I mean, before... Any uh, yeah. uh, alternate IDs that you're using for that kind of stuff? No, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't do any tweeting. Any alternate IDs? Nope, not even a pause. Andrew Krasinski broke the story for K-File, uh, and he's with me. So, I mean, that's not even, <laughs> there's, no, uh, there's no ambiguity in that. The questioning even went to alternate identities, uh, and he said no. Um, so he said, I don't do any tweeting. You found a lot, a lot of tweeting. Yeah, that's right, Aaron. So Chesbro had an anonymous Twitter account called Badger Pundit that he used to promote a very aggressive strategy, far more aggressive than he shared uh, with investigators. Now, he is cooperating uh, in multiple different state investigations. He claims that he was misled by these more radical elements within the Trump campaign about how they planned on using these fake electors, but those secret tweets really reveal an entirely uh, different story. Uh, Chesbro, you know, basically told investigators that he wanted those electors just as a contingency in case they won court cases, though so there would be Trump electors available on January 6th when Congress certifies the vote. Take a listen to this. 
I wanted conditional language in all the states that I suggested three times to the Trump campaign on December 12th that they make it conditional on winning litigation. But on his secret Twitter account, he said the courts didn't matter. Look at this tweet from November 5th, 2020. He says Trump doesn't have to get the courts to declare him the winner of the vote. He just needs to convince Republican legislatures that the election was systematically rigged, but it's impossible to run again, so they should appoint electors instead. So, I mean, it's all there. Now, how did you connect the dots that uh, this pundit (laughs) was actually Chesbro? So it's kind of interesting. Me and my colleague, uh, Ali Gordon, uh, first off, Chesbro uh, references this Twitter account in an email exchange with the Trump campaign on January 5th. So me and my colleague, uh, Ali Gordon, we started going through the account to see, uh, you know, Badger Pundit said he was with Alex Jones on January 6th. Uh, Chesbro was with Alex Jones on January 6th. Badger Pundit said he worked on, on Bush v. Gore and Chesbro worked on Bush v. Gore. So uh, eventually his lawyers did confirm to CNN uh, that he was behind the account. Uh, they did say there was clearly a conflict between the tweets um, and what Chesbro told uh, investigators. And they did give us this statement where they said uh, when he was doing volunteer work for the campaign, he gave specific kinds of legal advice based on things that he thought were legitimate legal challenges uh, versus Badger Pundit, uh, who was this guy over there just being a goof. Just being a goof. Just being a goof. Right. But of course, uh, you know, he lied. <laughs> that's that's what happened. At least they say there's clearly a conflict the way they put it. All right, Andrew, thank you very much. And out front legal analyst Ryan Goodman is with me now. I mean, Ryan, it's pretty amazing. So Andrew connects all these dots. K-File uh, the, the, goes to the team for Chesbro, and they say clearly there's a conflict, right? I mean, there's no denying this. At this point, though, it's important to remember, Chesbro was so central in the fake elector scheme. That's why Andrew's reporting matters so much. Seven key states, uh, including George, where, where, of course, he's already uh, pleaded guilty uh, in the Fulton County investigation. So how bad is this Twitter account, the K-File's breaking, that it exists uh, for Chesbro and ultimately Trump? So it's very bad. Um, Chesbro really is uh, identified in the January 6th indictment by the federal government as a chief architect. He's the main legal architect of the entire scheme to overturn the election and using the false electors. And here we have him not just caught in a bold-faced lie that he didn't use Twitter, but what he's also not, what he's hiding, I should say, from the prosecutors Mm -hmm. is that the Twitter account's very incriminating. Uh, Just as uh, was outlined, it's incriminating because, in fact, he tells the prosecutors that he thought the scheme was ridiculous, but the Twitter account is promoting the very scheme. Uh, he's also trying to maintain this persona that he was just providing legal advice, but this Twitter account is obviously showing that he is a very much of an activist and an ideologue. And then he does combine the two because he's actually sending the tweets to the Trump campaign, so it, he can't separate them as though they're two distinct personalities of a certain sort. It's uh, right. all combined. I mean, what kind of, you know, bipolar yeah. we're talking about here. I mean, it, look, this is clearly what he was what he was thinking, what he was doing, and that's the point. Yeah. I mean, he is technically cooperating, though, in several of the states that I mentioned, I believe four of them. Um, but the word cooperating may be very misleading, right? Yeah, and we've talked about it before, and yep. here I think is now bombshell te- uh, evidence, bombshell evidence that he's actually, I would for lack of a better word, an, an anti-cooperator, because yeah. he's going in there telling the prosecutors that he's cooperating and giving him, them information about others, but in fact, he is totally misleading them. Uh, that's what this 
demonstrates. Right. And he's, in fact, leading, misleading them about the timing of the scheme and his direct involvement in it. And he's trying to place the blame on others. That's the worst yeah. thing for the prosecutors. I think that now they have a choice in Michigan, actually, whether or not to indict him for these false, intentional false statements to them. All right. So the other thing that happened today uh, was the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg comes out and asked a judge for, an, I know it was narrow, but a gag order uh, on the former President Trump in the Stormy Daniels hush money case, which is set to go to trial uh, shortly uh, here in New York. So do you think they'll get the gag order? And is, is there any significance in this particular one for Trump? So I do think that they'll get the gag order. There's something really smart in uh, D.A. Bragg's petition to the court. What he does is he actually tracks the exact same language that the D.C. Circuit upheld in its gag order of President Trump. So the D.C. Circuit said that Trump cannot, quote, engage any making or directing others to make public statements about counsel in the case other than special counsel, members of the court staff and counsel staff, or the family members of any counsel or staff member. Bragg's petition asks the court to prohibit Trump from, quote, making or directing others to make public statements about counsel case or others than the district attorney, members of the court staff, district attorney staff, or the family members of any counsel or staff member. It tracks it verbatim. And then there's another provision as well where it also tracks verbatim the D.C. Circuit opinion saying you have to protect witnesses. And it's the exact same rule. So I do think that the judge in this case is going to say, well, if it's good enough for the D.C. Circuit, it's right, totally right. good enough They've for me. Right, through appeals and everything and, 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 and bet upheld. Exactly. All right, and I hope everyone will read your full blog on Just Security that you wrote about this issue today. Ryan, thank you very much. And next, warning shot. Democrats in Michigan pledging not to back Biden in tomorrow's primary. They need to hear... Um, our calls and heed our demands and respond to what it is that we're asking for, which is an immediate and a permanent ceasefire. But could it set off a major embarrassment for him tomorrow? Plus, former President Trump appealing the nearly half a billion dollar judgment he's ordered to pay in his New York fraud case. The clock is ticking. Will he get the cash in time? New tonight, President Biden saying he's hopeful there will be a ceasefire in Gaza by this time next week. My national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. Well, the timing of his comments today coming ahead of the Michigan primary tomorrow could be telling. A group of Michigan Democrats, in fact, are urging members of their own party to not vote for Biden in the state's primary on Tuesday. And that push is because of deepening anger over Biden's handling of the ongoing war in Gaza, which is now raising concerns about a potential serious embarrassment for Biden in what is a crucial must-win swing state in the general. So Diane Gallagher is there in Michigan to begin our coverage with the latest in our Voters Out Front series tonight. A pivotal November battleground. The road to the White House runs through Michigan. You don't win without Michigan. But some Democrats are using Tuesday's primary to put President Joe Biden on notice. A warning to Biden and his administration that they need to hear um, our calls and heed our demands and respond to what it is that we're asking for, which is an immediate and a permanent ceasefire. Using their ballots to protest the president's handling of the war in Gaza by voting uncommitted in the Democratic primary. It's a humanitarian vote. It's a protest vote. The grassroots Listen to Michigan campaign. Vote uncommitted. Launched by members of the state's large Arab American community just three weeks ago, has expanded to count progressives and young voters among its supporters, like Pontiac City Councilman Mikkel Goodman. Because we are often told many times that the power that we have as citizens in the U.S. is through the power of the ballot. And this is us using that power. No one 
who is voting uncommitted uh, wants Trump. They, they want what is happening in Gaza to, to stop. More than 30 state and local elected officials endorsed the campaign, as did Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress. If you want us to be louder, then come here and vote uncommitted. Now, organizers say for most, today's message is about the primary, but there's a lingering warning. You need to call for a ceasefire because it will save lives and because it's the necessary thing to do politically. Otherwise, you, President Biden, will be handing the White House to Donald Trump. The Biden campaign has acknowledged Michigan's importance in this election. But allies of the president aren't quite sounding alarms over the uncommitted primary strategy yet. I'm hoping and expecting that these folks will come vote for Joe Biden in November. But right now, they, ha they have an issue they want to brought attention to, and it's working. That's why we have an early presidential primary. The uncommitted campaign's goal is modest. Our threshold is 10,000 uh, uncommitted votes um, because that strategy is based off of the numbers that Trump won in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. In 2020, Biden won Michigan by more than 150,000 votes. But some Biden supporters, like former Congressman Andy Levin, say the president's prospects this November are uncertain. I mean, I'm going to do everything I can to get him elected in November. All I'm saying is I don't know if we can succeed unless we change course. And by the way, it's the right thing to do. He says he voted uncommitted in the primary, not because his support for the president is wavering. Well, I think the great danger for Joe Biden here in the Michigan primary is that he would win with no indication that he has a problem, with no visibility of how angry people are. And organizers of this campaign say that the broader concern for Democrats as a whole in November is rooted in that, noting that this is not political. This is personal for many people here in this community. They have friends and family members who have been killed in Gaza, and their worry is not that they'll just leave the top of the ticket blank in November if something does not change, but that they may not turn out at all in November. Now, Aaron, it's also important to note that Michiganders vote uncommitted all the time, so not everyone who votes this way on Tuesday is supporting this campaign. That's an important point. All right, Diane, thank you so much. In Michigan tonight, David Axelrod is here with me now out front. So how big of a problem for Biden is the protest vote in Michigan? Well, look, we'll see the size of it. I saw Governor Whitmer uh, on with Dana yesterday saying we, no one really knows how big it will be. It's not going to impact sort of the, it's not going to overwhelm him, I don't think, in that state. But look, it underscores a problem. The fact that we're talking about it uh, suggests that they've already succeeded in, in, in bringing attention to the issue. And this right. is a real issue, not just with the Arab American voters in Michigan, and they, there's a sizable number of them, but also with young people, with, as some in the African American community. I mean, this is a real thing for him, which is, I think, a maybe why tonight, when he was standing there in the ice cream parlor, he said, hey, we're close. We, we're going to get this done. Right, right. I mean, and as I said, the timing is important. I mean, look, when it comes to re-election, as you, as you point out, it's not as if he's going to, you know, expect it to lose tomorrow. It's, it's what kind of an embarrassment it could be when it happens. But when we talk about the margin, she was saying 150,000 votes. Uh, in the scheme of some states, that's a big margin compared to last time. Yes. But people might not show up. Our American community there is obviously significant. The yeah. anger is real. Yeah. Um, some of the headlines in Detroit, um, in Michigan, uh, I'm sorry, Michigan overall. Mm -hmm. um, one, if Arab Americans will deliver Biden's first blow 
Another Democrats, quote, threatened to turn away from him over the war. How significant could this be in the general in Michigan, which is must win? It is. Uh, Michigan is going to be close, closer, I think, than the last time. Polling suggests that. He's been behind in a number of polls in Michigan. It's going to be a marginal race. So even if it's a marginal difference uh, in the uh, turnout of uh, Arab American voters, of young voters, uh, a marginal difference can make the difference in, in, in these battleground states and certainly in Michigan. So it is a concern. But I should point out I mean, as horrific as this whole nightmare has been, starting with this massacre of Hamas on October 7th, we're eight months away from the election. We don't know what is going to ensue between now and then. And, you know, Whitmer yesterday was uh, reminding people that the choice will be uh, not a referendum on the president, but between him and Donald Trump and the Arab Arab American community there is going to have to consider if they think that uh, the the, uh, policy is going to be better with Donald Trump. Before you go, uh, at the top of the program, Evgenio was saying, close friend of Alexei Navalny's, that he read your book while in a penal colony. And and I know you really only found this out very recently after he died. After he died. What did it mean to you to hear it? Oh my God, it blew me away. You know, the part of the book that he cited was to Kerry Kennedy, Robert Kennedy's uh, daughter. And the Kennedys inspired me to politics and that's what he was talking about. Imagine the people who he will inspire uh, to, to, to continue the fight. Uh, he is one of those inspirational figures like the Kennedys, like Martin Luther King. And I'm just so pleased that he read my book. Yeah, it's pretty incredible to imagine that. And I know, as, as you say, you never know yeah. who you influence and exactly. impact. And uh, wow. All right, David, thank you so much. Great to be with you. And next, President Trump on deadline to pay half a billion dollars he owes in the New York fraud case. So can he get the money in time and exactly how? Someone who knows who's done it many times before is here. And Sylvester Stallone, the latest in a long list of big names to leave California for good. I'll ask Congresswoman Katie Porter, who's running for Senate there, what she's doing to stop more money from fleeing the state of California. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, Donald Trump officially appealing that massive $454 million judgment that he's been ordered to pay in the New York fraud case. Trump has fewer than 30 days to secure a bond or come up with the money himself to prevent New York Attorney General Letitia James from collecting anything during the appeal. And while the clock is ticking, Trump is out attacking the judge in the case. He comes out with a verdict and you're supposed to put up a bond. It's a sham. It's a horrible thing. Uh, We did nothing wrong. He knows we did nothing wrong. He practically said we did nothing wrong. Out front now, Neil Peterson. He is owner of the surety bond company Peterson & Sons in New York, where he's issued thousands of bonds as an expert on this process. I do note, Neil, you're not involved in this uh, specific uh, case, obviously. But when you add up the penalty in the fraud case, uh, along the New York, uh, you know, business fraud case, along with the money Trump's been ordered to pay in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, you have well over half a billion dollars. I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of money uh, for an individual in New York 
according to Forbes, Trump does not have enough cash on hand to pay it. Now, that's Forbes, but that's their, their estimate. He does not. They say he has got about $426 million in liquid assets and cash, and that is, of course, less than he owes. So what do you think Trump needs to do to secure a bond? I think he's going to need to come up with additional capital. I think at the end of the day, he's going to be required to put up liquid assets either equal to or just under the amount of the bond. And without that, I don't think he's going to be able to obtain it. I mean, I understand that there there's, there's, seems to be a 30-day grace period here that's been put into place by uh, by the court. Um, do you, but just to be clear, that would not be normal, right? I mean, normally do people get 30 days to figure this out? No. Well, in federal court, you get 30 days. In state court, there are no safe days in New York state court so that the judgment can be executed once it's entered. All right. So him getting any time would, would be different than, than anybody else would get. I mean, could he be in danger of not securing the money? I mean, if, if obviously he doesn't have the liquid assets, or even if he does up to the point you say up to or close to, then he would have nothing else left. So he might need to do something to secure this. Correct. He may have to either further encumber assets, possibly sell something, or raise the money from either family, other entities, or related parties. And um, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, has made it clear that she will take Trump's buildings in Manhattan if it comes to it. She has said that. Here she is. We are prepared to make sure that the judgment is paid to New Yorkers. And yes, I look at 40 Wall Street each and every day. Uh, 40 Wall Street, of course, was at the heart, one of the the, the buildings at the heart of the case uh, that was ruled on. What do you think could happen if Trump is not able to secure the bond? Well, that's a little bit for post-judgment execution uh, specialists. That's not what I do. But I think it's going to be difficult for um, Lietta James to actually seize his assets. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. All right. Well, Neil, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Neil Peterson, as I said, an expert on this. And next, Republicans seizing on the death of a college student to call for a crackdown at the southern border. Plus, Monica Lewinsky in a totally new way that we've never seen her before. Tonight, at least five times. That's how many times the man charged with murdering a University of Georgia student had been arrested and released without penalty. 22-year-old Lakin Hope Riley was going for a run when she was murdered by blunt force trauma to the head. The suspect is in the United States illegally. He came from Venezuela and was arrested in 2022 for crossing into the U.S. illegally, but then released. He was arrested in April of last year, then released. In September, he was arrested twice and charged with, quote, acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17, then released. In October, arrested again, then released. Arrested again in December. This is according to U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Out front now, the Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter. She sits on the Oversight Committee. And in her state of California, the number of illegal border crossings is up 60 percent in one city versus a year ago. Congressman, so, so much to talk to you about today, but I wanted to start with this. I mean, we can all agree this is a horrible, horrible thing that happened. It shouldn't have happened, but it did. Uh, former President Donald Trump today called it out. He, he writes on uh, social media, the monster who took her life illegally entered our country in 2022 and then was released again by radical Democrats in New York after injuring a child. I, I know that you may not choose the same words, but do you share his outrage? Well, I think when a horrible tragedy like like this happens, I think whenever we're dealing um, with violent crime, there is a sense of outrage, of sadness, and of loss. 
but I think the important thing to focus on is any one instance shouldn't shape our overall immigration policy, which has so many different facets, including economic choices about what workers to allow in and how to create prosperity in America. So the situation is tragic and it's a loss and it's important to acknowledge that, but also to recognize all the other, how all the other parts of immigration policy fit together. Well, so the number of migrants crossing into your state illegally is up, as I, as I referenced a moment ago. The L.A. Times says in San Diego there were nearly 25,000 migrant border arrests in January, which is a 60 percent increase over the same exact time period just a year ago. Now, President Biden has announced he's going to go to the southern border in Texas this week uh, and, and obviously he's not been to the border now in, in over a year. Do you think he should be going to your state as well? Well, I'm really heartened that President Biden is going to the border. Of course, we would love to have him come visit the border here in California. One of the things I've heard over and over again in oversight committee hearings is that our southern border isn't a monolith. The challenges that our border personnel and communities face are different in areas where it's more rural, where there are different cities, depending on geography and depending on where migrants are going. So I think it's really important if President Biden is going to continue to lead on immigration policy and on Solving our challenges at the border, which he must do. I think being there and listening to folks on the ground is an incredibly important step to boostering his, bolstering his credibility and giving him the authority to create consensus. Would you support if he had an executive action, if he, whether it was challenged in the courts or not, but support him taking an executive action to close the border? Well, I think executive action is really important. It's the only way that we've been able to make any progress at addressing immigration at all. Um, but I think we've seen under Title 42 and some other policies that efforts to simply, quote, close, quote, the border um, is not really solving the longer term problem, which is that we have not put the resources or the policies at the border. Mm. Um, so we have all different kinds of chaos and challenges from not having enough immigration judges to not investing in technology that can help us screen for fentanyl, which I have voted for, but we need to do more on, um, to recognizing that we haven't kept our promise to dreamers. All of these things come together yeah. to create the kinds of chaotic immigration policies we see. I want to ask you about a couple of other things. First, the IVF issue going on in the state of Alabama when the Supreme court ruled that frozen embryos are actually people. Uh, there have been uh, backlash to that, even in the GOP, including Trump. Here he is. Like the overwhelming majority of Americans, including the vast majority of Republican, conservatives, Christians and pro-life Americans, I strongly support the availability of IVF for couples who are trying to have a precious little beautiful baby. I support it. We want to make it easier uh, for people to be able to have babies, not, not make it harder. Uh, and the IVF process is a way of giving life uh, to even more babies. All right, they're clear they don't support their ruling. Could they nip this in the bud as an election issue? Well, this is absolutely an election issue. Look, reproductive freedom is a is an issue about people being able to choose when and if to start a family. And Republicans, extremist Republicans, shouldn't get to define um, what that freedom looks like. It's not just the freedom to use IVF to start your family. It's also the freedom not to become a parent and to have an abortion. And I think what we're seeing here is hypocrisy. A number of my colleagues, as you may know, were on bills that would limit IVF even at the same time that they 
they are saying they support it. Hmm. Even in a state like California, which protects abortion rights, we are seeing this play out in the Senate race with MAGA extremist Eric Early doubling down on an abortion and ban, even as this IVF controversy is raging. I want to ask you, because you are running for Senate in California, uh, and about one crucial thing. Uh, some people have been leaving California. The numbers uh, show a Net, net people leaving and some wealthy people. Uh, yesterday, uh, Sylvester Stallone announced that he is leaving. He's moving to Florida and he's not alone. Mark Wahlberg, uh, Nevada, Better Life, Joe Rogan, Texas, Elon Musk, Texas, uh, maybe tax refugees. It's real money, though, leaving your state. What are you going to do about it? Well, look, Washington has not focused on California's biggest challenge, which is housing affordability. We have had basically the same federal housing policy for five decades, as long as I've been alive. And as a result, we are seeing housing prices um, continue to be a problem and an aging yeah. housing stock in California. That's the big challenge we face is housing affordability. Washington needs to focus on it. It's California's biggest problem. All right. Congresswoman Porter, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.